This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Hi, and welcome to the Money Pot. I'm Rachel Morrissey, a producer here at Money 2020, and I'm joined by Sanjeev Kalita, our editor in chief. How's it going, Sanj? I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great because today I have a mystery for you. I get to talk to you about a real life heist. Wait, I I thought this was a fintech podcast. Are you trying to break into the true crime podcast market? I think that market is a little oversaturated, to be honest. But I do have a fintech mystery, which is a real thriller. Ooh, I love a good mystery story. I feel like I need to get a blanket and a hot cup of cocoa. (laughs) Well, it's a heist which has impacted the fintech industry ever since it happened and potentially slowed the growth of the crypto markets pretty significantly. Spooky, right? Ooh, I've got chills. Well, I'm going to take you back to 2014 during crypto's ancient history. There was this infamous crypto exchange, Mt. Gox. And at that time, Crypto had a mixed reputation because it was an exchange that linked to the infamous Silk Road dark web, where all sorts of nefarious things could be bought. So Mt. Gox was growing like crazy at the time, and it was the biggest exchange. At the time, it handled over 70% of all Bitcoin transactions. And then one day, There was a real-world digital heist where $460 million worth of crypto just disappeared. Poof. I'm very familiar with this story. It took a long time before anyone was actually found guilty of that heist, right? Five years. This has to be one of the biggest heists in the history of crypto, right? And the crazy thing is, is that when the owner of Mt. Gox reported the theft to the police... The cops ended up arresting him for breach of trust. And what actually happened was that it was siphoned off by an insider, Alexander Vinnick, and he cashed out and moved assets around. He was initially caught in December of 2017 and was sentenced to five years. And because he cashed out, that meant that his stolen money could keep popping up throughout the system in different places. People who unknowingly have some stolen money could have it seized. It's illegal to own stolen crypto. Wow. It's really not surprising that there's been hesitancy from a lot of people when it comes to investing in crypto when you could end up with someone's stolen money and potentially be breaking the law. Exactly. And it just so happens I spoke to someone this week who is part of solving this problem and legitimizing the crypto markets. Hi, I'm Philip Gradwell, and I'm the chief economist at Chainalysis. So Philip's boss was inspired by the Mt. Gox heist and worked out that if people, institutions and governments were going to start taking crypto seriously, there needed to be a solution to the problem of traceability. And that was an issue with crypto. You could see when currency went through an exchange, but connecting those dots was really messy and difficult to do. One of the key selling points of crypto is being able to transfer value without feeling like you've given up your identity. They're not trying to get rid of that, are they? No, Chainalysis doesn't investigate the identity of crypto owners, but it provides clarity to the movement of coins in the spaces between the different exchanges, which is pretty invaluable from an investigator's point of view. What we're really doing is 
we're mapping these blockchain addresses to real world entities. So we can actually say, look, you know, this much Bitcoin is held by you know, these types of businesses. It's flowing from here to there. And any new industry needs that kind of foundational data layer. You, know, you wouldn't imagine getting into any financial you know, market in the traditional world unless you, you know, had your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, you, know, you wouldn't go and put money into a seed stage company unless you had your Crunchbase account. So we're really providing that data layer. We use that to help people screen for anti-money laundering. So checking the source and destination of funds. And that's crucial. People don't want to hold cryptocurrency that's come from an illegal source. And indeed, they can't. They shouldn't. You know, there are laws against that. This sounds exactly like something I need right now. I've been talking to several crypto investors and investor groups over the past few weeks, and the problems that Philip mentions are exactly some of the problems that I'm seeing. So effectively, what Chainalysis is doing is demystifying the system. They're lifting the fog around how money is moving. Exactly. I mean, it had the same problem cash has. It's very difficult to provide evidence for a suitcase of cash being handed from one person to another. That is the problem that crypto has. But according to Philip, not anymore. A way I like to think about it, if people who've watched The Matrix, and turns out that's an old film now, so they don't always get the reference. But, you know, if people see all the computer code that was going down the screen, it's as if you can see the real world that's behind that. And not only does that mean there's an ability to capture evidence for potential crimes, it also means that big businesses will be able to invest in crypto legitimately, safe in the knowledge that the coins they are about to purchase come from a legitimate source rather than as the result of a heist, like uh, we saw in the Mt. Gox case. This also means that it is a legitimate asset and regulators can be comfortable that it is suitable to store value for the long term. If exchanges were as vulnerable as Mt. Gox to siphoning off funds without traceability, then there'd be no way for Bitcoin proponents to argue that it stores real value. This kind of data set increases the trust in cryptocurrency for the mainstream. Yeah. Another factor in crypto legitimization is the growth of tokenizing real assets in Ethereum, which started in 2017. We talked all about that history in our previous episode. This episode is an NFT. But those crypto kitties did more than verify ownership of digital art. So the first, go back to say the middle of 2017, and you know, all of a sudden people realized that you could use cryptocurrencies, in particular Ethereum, to run these initial coin offerings, which were ways of, as it were, almost getting an equity stake in a company, but not quite. You know, it was a fundraising mechanism, uh, and it took off in popularity, and there was a huge speculative bubble uh, towards the end of 2017. That obviously burst, but it brought a huge amount of retail interest and really changed the narrative from this being you know, an asset that's in those dark corners of the internet to being an investment vehicle. The key thing that happened then is the industry actually had about three years to really mature, you know, to put in place all of the plumbing and the coding and the infrastructure and getting the regulation in place and putting in place, you know, your AML you know, policies. It's important to say at this point that a lot of these factors can seem like a happy coincidence to have got crypto to where it is today. But that's not a true representation of what happened. All of these elements were built on top of people like Chainalysis spotting an issue and working to solve for that. 
Exactly. And throughout this whole process, there have been people finding issues and fixing them. And that has meant that when it was time for crypto to hit the big time, it was ready and able to step up to the plate. And that moment definitely arrived in 2020. But what happened after that was you saw a huge amount of investor interest in cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin. And it literally happens from that day in mid-March, like the 14th of March, everything falls. The next day, demand starts to grow. And I think the reason for that is we've seen you know, this unprecedented amount of you know, monetary expansion and cryptocurrencies are the asset to hold in that type of world. And the industry had matured because it had that experience back in 2017 and learned the lessons. And honestly, I think we're going to look back at 2020 just as a dress rehearsal for what's about to come. With governments globally flooding their markets with currency for very legitimate reasons, economists around the world are pointing to the necessity of having a value hold of scarcity. And this is a big differentiator between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because Bitcoin is limited while Ethereum isn't. Ethereum is much more of a financial tool while Bitcoin is an asset hold. And there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin ever created. And yeah, I think a general economic trend that we've had is you know, the reduction of scarcity. It's hard to find things that are scarce now. And with all the monetary expansion that we've had, money is no longer as scarce as it was. Of course, it's distributed in different ways. We have inequality, but fundamentally, there's a lot of these things around. What Bitcoin gives us is you know, a new scarce asset. That's really valuable. And that's simply the story, in a sense, of Bitcoin. It's a scarce asset in a world where actually more and more things are being created. And so it's a good place to put your money. Maybe one day, you know, there'll be a hard cap for Ethereum. Key thing that's happening there is actually just new ways of doing finance. So you know, people might have heard of decentralized finance. These are really you know, experiments in creating fully autonomous ways of, say, lending money uh, out to people. So on the one hand, you've got you know, this scarce asset, Bitcoin. And then on the other hand, you've really got the next frontier of finance. And both of those are valuable use cases. So that's great. It seems like we're in a place now where these cryptocurrencies have gone from dark web nefarious purposes to legitimized, widely used financial tools, asset holds, and much more. This actually reminds me a bit about how in the early days of the VCR, VHS tapes gained fast adoption in things people wanted to keep hidden, like adult videos and pornography, but fairly quickly changed to mainstream content. But what do you think is the end game for crypto, Rachel? How is the brand new form of money going to impact the way things are currently done? Well, gee, I don't know. Comparing it to porn is always the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> that is really opening up a Pandora's box there. And there's lots of ways to look at this. But let's take a quick look at some of the positive ways we think this will affect things. We're going to move from what was effectively a monopoly of currency to an open market, where currencies are able to compete with each other. And the consumer will be able to make choices on what money is used based on what will benefit them the most. So honestly, I think they're going to compete. And I think that's actually quite exciting. Um, you know, central bank digital currencies, they'll be very different from cryptocurrencies. Right. For example, they won't run on a centralized ledger. Um, you know, they'll be just very different. They'll be much more like money is today. 
But what is interesting is I actually think in the future, we will you know, go to a restaurant. Maybe we'll get to go to a restaurant one day. That would be nice. Um, but when we do, we will get to pay the bill and we'll be able to choose on our mobile which type of money we want to pay with. You know, Do we use DM dollars? Do we use PayPal's cryptocurrency? Do we use the central bank digital currency of the country that I'm a citizen of? And I think that is going to just create you know, competition creates innovation, and we've never had competition around you know, the type of money that I can use day to day, like we're about to see in the next few years. Sanj, can you imagine yourself paying a restaurant check and you not only pay from your own device, but you choose the currency that you want to pay with? I love that idea. I've actually experienced something like this in the real world when I've been to touristy destinations like Cusco, Peru or Marrakesh in Morocco. When I was there, certain merchants would accept local currencies like Peruvian Sol or Moroccan dirhams, but they'd also accept currencies like dollars and euros. Because of the complexity, this wasn't done widely, and there is chaos inherent in it. Simplifying payments is usually a good thing, but choosing your currency adds a layer of complexity. The good part is that with cryptocurrencies, the layer can be integrated into digital wallets. It really takes the idea of payments to another level. But is this increase in consumer choice that could increase chaos good for the masses? Well, I mean, the chaos might actually serve the purpose of helping more people keep and grow their wealth. The chaos that we might see when you have multiple different types of money that you can pay with, there I think it's important to think of the perspective. So we can actually see in the data that from mid-March of 2020, people have started to actually save money in you know, these stable coins. So people typically don't hold stable coins for very long. Uh, you know, they're just sort of moving them around to, say, trade for other cryptocurrencies. But in the last 12 months, people have actually been holding these stable coins you know, for longer periods of time. And these tend to be people who are not based, for example, in the US. So there are people from other countries you know, who don't use the dollar natively who are now holding these digital dollars, for them, actually, this you know, alternative competing type of money isn't chaos for them. It's actually you know, safety or security. So again, it's, there's always the potential for consumer harm in any financial innovation. But is the chaos more going to be on the side of you know, the established large players, the governments, or is it actually going to be on the consumers or, you know, is there actually going to be some beneficial innovation for them? That's a great point. Chaos or the perception of chaos depends on your perspective. For example, a couple of the conversations I've been having with investors are from South America, where economic situations are more unpredictable, making cryptocurrency seem like an accessible and stable source of value. I can definitely see usage of crypto for this increasing. It absolutely is. I mean, crypto seems vulnerable because of its mimetic nature, but the big investments are all around how crypto can be used to store value. And Philip spoke about this when I asked him what the ultimate goal was for Chainalysis. I mean, what is their future? So the big mission for Chainalysis is to be the data platform for digital assets. We believe that more and more assets will be digitized for example, we're seeing through you know, stable coins at the moment that, for example, people are digitizing dollars. 
as more and more assets get digitized, the type of data that you can provide, the type of analysis that you can do actually increases. It's much more powerful than what you can do today. And so we want to be the company that you know, builds that data platform and helps that digital economy you know, grow to its next level. Well, that is quite the big mission. And with that kind of mic drop, I think we're ready to wrap up this episode of The Money Pot. We'd like to thank Philip Bradwell, the Chief Economist of Chainalysis, for tackling some extremely tough questions. They have just launched a podcast called Market Intel Report by Chainalysis, where Philip walks you through all the weekly ins and outs of crypto markets. And we'd also like to thank our amazing producer, Roland Boddenham. We are very excited about seeing you in person, yes, live, in Amsterdam on September 21st through 23rd, and in Vegas from October 24th to 27th. Tickets to both shows are available now at money2020.com. And if you like The Money Pot, please leave us a review in iTunes to help others find the show. This podcast will also be live in Vegas, so tell us now how much you want to be part of it by sending ideas to podcast at money2020.com. Thank you for listening. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.